because as I sort of view the new year, my main resolution and desire is to have a life that is more holy, more pure than the previous one, if you would, or, and then my fail, begin to look back at all my successes, if you would, or, and then my failures, um, it is always a desire for me to put God's glory on display. And so uh, I hope that's your same objective, because we could sort of eat less, do more or less, or do more of something else, but if it isn't really centered on, you know, uh, for God's glory, um, then they're only temporal things. And so I hope you have a very happy and uh, uh, prosperous new year, and I hope through your life that people can see Christ alive and active. And so if you're here for the first time, we just want to welcome you, because once again, um, I'm the new guy, and I don't always know all, all, the, all the faces, and, um, uh, but if, if you're here, we just want to welcome you, because we come to a very uh, exciting set of verses to where we get to see Christ and uh, why his life uh, was one of great either diversity or one in which he just set people off. And so let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come to your word, that it is powerful, that it is active, that it is alive, that over a 1,600-year period that you used over 40 men in over three continents to come up with your story of the reason why man is here, the purpose for history, and how sinful man can have a way of salvation through you, that we can get to know who you are because you have revealed yourself in human history. So thank you, Father, that your spirit is there to teach us and to mold our thoughts, that, it, that he can convict, but also that he can give us understanding. So speak to our hearts, Father, so that we can leave this place different from the time that we have spent in that living word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we come to our Lord's six I am statement. And as you turn there, I just want to begin by, by saying we sort of live in a time to where people get very offended quite easily. It doesn't take much to where you're in a discussion with someone, and if they begin to disagree with you in really any area at all, that they are offended. It's very easy to sort of trigger people without knowing it, to where they just sort of get offended about things or triggered. And once again, if you don't believe me, just go out wearing a MAGA hat and you'll find trouble. If trouble will just go out and find you doesn't matter where you are, just wear it and it will find you. It's interesting because as you know, the Bible has many great truths. Many of these truths are very hard to accept when people hear it. They hear it and they get triggered. And it's not that it's hard for them to understand, but it's hard to accept. And so many of these um, triggering statements were spoken by our Lord himself. Statements may seem to be very harsh, and then they are discarded by those who disagree. But when the world hears these statements, they like to redefine them. 
to make them more palatable. And we're going to be coming to one of these statements to where our society gets very triggered. It's a verse that I use uh, predominantly in my discussion of Christ to those who do not know him in my evangelism. It's one in which it says what it says, but one may not always want to accept what it has to say. And so to some, when we share the gospel, it is like nails going down a blackboard. It just sets them off because they may not like to hear the aspect from Jesus' own words that he is the only way to heaven, period. And so Jesus is going to make this statement, which for its hearers are that nails going down the blackboard. They did not want to hear it. Because he is going to state that there is no other way that one can come to God except through him. That there is no other truth to get to him. There is no other way to heaven to have eternal life except through him. And so throughout John's gospel, he's been laying the foundation through seven uh, miracles on that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that he wrote it for people to read it and for them to believe. And so during these um, great statements that he makes, that there are seven of them, we're on number six. We've seen in John chapter six that when he made the statement, I am the bread of life. In John eight, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life Today we're going to be seeing in, seeing in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in John chapter 15, whenever that next time is, we're going to be looking at I am the true vine. These are great statements, great I am statements to where when our Lord makes them, they were profound to his audience. They just weren't part of a greater exposition that he was saying. They were they were foundational. And for us, they continue to be great because they defined who Jesus was and why he came to the earth. For those who don't know him, um, they can be transforming statements. For those who know him, they're great encouraging statements that they are there to cling to when times get hard, when times get difficult. These statements are life-changing no matter who hears them. And so as we get to look at John chapter 14, we're going to be looking at this sixth I am statement. And it's interesting because when he makes this one statement, our Lord is in the upper room with his disciples on the last night in Jerusalem where he is the main speaker. He is there to teach them for the last time. They were there to celebrate the Passover. He had only hours left to live. And during his final speech, he wanted to give them and reassure them truths in which, after he has gone, would be foundational for them to continue in their, in their walk with him. And so during this time, it was a time of celebration. It was a time in which it was convicting to them. But throughout his ministry, he was there to lay down the fact that he was God in the flesh coming to die on the cross. 
Because look at verse 33, if, if you would. He says to his disciples, the, the 11 who are now, now there, because Judas has already gone to start in motion his betrayal. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so that was uh, chapter 13, so sorry. And so uh, he is there, and in the midst of his discussion, he's saying, I have to go. They were looking forward to a Messiah to set up the kingdom, to overthrow the Romans, to set up the Davidic kingdom to where um, Israel would be great again. And so they were expecting a great deliverer. But he kept coming back to the aspect that he had to go. And look at verse 36 of chapter 13. He says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. He's speaking about his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven and return to the Father, in which he'll be seated at the right hand of the Father. But in the meantime, he needs to go, and there's going to be a separation. He spent near, uh, nearly three and a half years with his disciples, almost the entire time. And they were troubled by Jesus' statement, because they lived with him. They ate with him. They seen the miracles. They heard his teaching. But he begins chapter 14, verse 1, by saying, do not let your heart be troubled or literally stop having troubled hearts. Believe in God, believe in me also. So at the beginning of chapter 14, it is a message of comfort for their troubled heart. Their hearts are filled with much confusion and frustration, fear and anxiety as they hear him that he was going to be leaving, they sort of knew that their world was going to be collapsing around them. It was going to be changing, and changing to a, a, a much gr uh, worse way because our Lord said that you were going to be persecuted because they persecuted me. And so when fear enters one life and frustration and confusion, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 141 and verse 8, that we're to turn our eyes to the Lord. He writes, for my eyes are toward you, O God, the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave me defenseless. And so as their hearts was filled with confusion at the beginning of chapter 14 here, he wants to comfort them, to remove those fears and that overflowed their one heart. He says, I'm about to leave you, but trust me. You believe in the Father, believe also in me. And so in John chapter 14 through uh, 16, these are words of comfort to underscore that though he is going to be leaving, that you can continue without fear. And so Jesus is the one who can troubled, can, that can soothe the troubled heart and give one comfort. Because as he is about to leave them, it is for a purpose. And he's going to say in verse 6 of John chapter 14, 
that there is a way, that there is a truth, and there is a life. And that's, that, that's the only um, the way and truth and life that you will ever need. So much so that I'm going to send you, in verse 16 of John chapter 14, someone just like me. And so he is saying, trust me. There is nothing for you to uh, worry about. You're not going to be alone. You're not going to be hopeless. And you're not going to be defenseless. All of those anxieties and fears will be replaced with the peace of God because he cares for them. And so in verse 2 of, of uh, John chapter 14, he says, In my father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not sold, uh, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And so he's saying, I'm going to leave you. But like in Jewish tradition, the groom would, before the wedding, go to prepare a lodging for his future wife. He's saying, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back and receive you to myself, to where I am, that you will be there also, in verse 3. And so he's going to prepare a place for them. And so Jesus is trying to comfort them, to tell them, though I'm not going to be here, I'm going to prepare a place where we can be together again. It underscores the reality that heaven is a real place, which is prepare for them and for his people. And though throughout the Bible we only get a small glimpse of what heaven is going to be like, each time that we see it, it's going to be a wonderful place. Because Jesus is there preparing it for those who he loves. And look at verse 4. The questioning continues. And as you know the way where I am. And Thomas said to him in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? He says, tell us the way that you are going. And then we get to our verse, the statement. That rings out in their hearts. He says to them. I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the father. Except through what? Me. There are three elements. In this I am statement. Um, that are. That were very well known. To its Jewish readers and hearers. The way. The truth. And the life. It's interesting because these three things are found throughout the Old Testament. The truth and the life are modifiers of the way. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. Because of the way and because of the truth, it makes one have eternal life. And so for his disciples, they kept coming back to, where are you going? We don't know the way. And in verse 6, Jesus tells them, I am the way. And so in this great I am statement found in verse 6, there are five areas that I want to emphasize this morning to help us get a deeper understanding of this statement. Because this statement that he makes is a statement of divinity. It's a statement of exclusivity. It's a statement of reconciliation. It's a statement of revelation, and lastly, it's a statement of regeneration. And so let's look at that first part, if you would. 
when he makes this great statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a statement of divinity. He begins in verse 6 by saying, I am. And as we've been seeing in the other great I am statements, when he makes this statement, he is actually equating himself as God or to God, that he was God in the flesh. Because it goes back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses says, well, tell me a name of who, when I go to Israel, who is sending me? And he tells them, I am. Tell them that I am has sent you, because I am who I am. That verb there means to be. And it has the emphasis, I am all that there is. All that there is, I am. And it gives us an understanding that God is absolutely independent and self-sufficient on anything or anyone. He doesn't need anyone or anything to be complete in himself, for he is lacking in nothing. And so he equates himself with God by using the name that God uses for himself by beginning by saying, I am. It was profound for the Jewish hearers because throughout his ministry they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. And so we get to see that even in this passage he's equating himself with God. Look at verse, uh, verse 1. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And he just could have stopped there if he was only a man. But he goes on to say, believe also in me. He doesn't say that God is the only one who can fix your anxious hearts. But he says, believe in me, and I can also comfort and fix your anxious heart. Because only one who is truly God can relieve that anxious heart. Here he's, he's going to say that no one can come to the Father but through me. He's equating himself with God because he is God. And you can get to the Father through him because he is God. And then in verse 13... He says that whatever you ask in my name, I will do, so that the Father may glorify in the Son, be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Ask in my name, and I will perform it. He doesn't say, go in the Father's name, and he will do it. He says, ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. I will perform it. Only one who is truly God can perform the things that we ask. Because no mere man has the ability to act on things that are brought to God. So he says, come to me, ask in my name. And then in verse 24, he equates his words to God's words. He says, he, does not, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So he is saying, if you don't keep my words or God's word, um, he will not hear you. And so only God's word lasts forever. And so even in this passage, he's equating himself with God. And if you remember last time, we used the word wane, W-W-A-N-E, that, we, that um, when we think about Christ's deity we, we, and try to defend it, we think of that word. His works, Jesus' worship, Jesus' attributes, his names, and his 
um, equated. Jesus works that Jesus performed works that only God can perform. Jesus received worship that only God is true received. Because even in the Christmas story, when the Magi show up, they say, we're here to worship the babe. Well, to, to the Jews, that was an anathema. That, that was terrible. But they came to worship the babe. Why? Because they understood that he was God. Jesus has the attributes that only God can possess. Jesus has the names, Emmanuel, God with us, that only God can be called. And then, as we see with, with this one passage, Jesus equated himself with God. And so if you remember uh, the initials W-W-A-N-E, you can then begin to explain to someone why we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh because of the works and the worship and the attributes and the names. And he equated himself with God. And so when he makes this statement, it was a statement of divinity. But secondly, as we go through these five areas, it's a statement of exclusivity. The definite article is used, and it's not something that we can just sort of burp over. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's not an indefinite article where he's saying, I am a way and I am a truth and I am a life. By him using the definite article, it makes it a definite statement. There's no vagueness that is found here. And Jesus is going to make it very clear that he is the ex only exclusive way to the Father. He's not one of many ways. He's the only way. So he ends verse 6 by saying, no one can come to the Father but through me. He's saying if you want to go to the Father himself, there's only one way. There's only one set of truth. There's only one life that is needed. All other ways, all other truth, and all other claims of life leads one away from the Father. And so when he makes this statement, it's a statement of exclusivity. There isn't multiple ways to go to the Father. And we'll expand on this in a moment. But thirdly, this is a statement of not only of divinity and exclusivity, but it is a statement of reconciliation. It's a statement of rec reconciliation by looking at that first phrase, if you would, out of the three. And Jesus said to him, I am the way. That is a tremendous statement that he makes. Jesus is saying that he is the only way to God, and he focuses on himself by using the first-person pronoun. I am the way. Him himself personally is the way to the Father. And so with him making that statement, he is clearly defining for us that if you want to go through the Father, if you want to have eternal life, it's not through religion or some religious ceremony that you partake in. It's not having a vision or a dream. It's not through baptism. It's not through Mary. It's not through any other kind of work one can sort of conjure up. Because we cannot merit our position before God. He himself is the only way to the Father through himself. And that's really at the heart of the gospel, is it not? He's making an exclusive claim. 
If you look at the term, the way there, it speaks of a path. It implies a beginning and an end. I am the way to the Father. It speaks of a beginning point leading to another point. And as we shall see in a moment, man starts at a place in which he finds himself in total and complete ruin and lostness. But if you follow the way, it leads to a place of being in the presence of God. And so we all know that we live in a sin-lost and sinful world, that there is a gulf between us and where the Father is. And we cannot cross that gulf no matter what we do because we continually fall short of God's standard. And man looks for many ways to get to God, tries to do good works and good deeds. And they hope that at the end of their lives, their good works will outweigh their bad works. But it is not enough to cross the chasm that lies before them between man and a holy, utterly holy And so man finds himself totally corrupt and dead in our sins. But Jesus provides the means to be able to cross that chasm. And so I want you to look at, at a verse, if you would. There's a few verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you can take the, the Bible or the one that's in front of you, turn to Romans chapter 3, if you would. Because when Christ makes their statement, it's a statement to where... It shows that if you want to go to the Father, how to get there. But you have to understand something first. And first of all, what, what you need to understand, that the human race, the entire human race, is completely separated from God. Look at verse 10 of Romans chapter 3. We find that there is none righteous, not even one. Not only that, but he goes on to say that there that there is no one who understands and no one who seeks after God. Trouble is, man thinks he's not that bad. <laughs> you know, if you talk to somebody, uh, one of your co-workers, they would say, well, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm not like Hitler. You know, I'm not like those guys, those extreme guys. You know, I'm doing my own thing, but I'm not that bad. Haven't killed anyone. Haven't really done anything to where they should be locking me up for a long period of time. But when you look at what Paul says here, there's, there's none righteous, not even one. But secondly, you're separated from God because of your sin. But secondly, you're separated from God because of Adam's sin. Turn to the right two more chap uh, chapters, if you go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. We're separated from God I know I'm a sinner. No one had to tell me that. But I, what I didn't know at the time was I'm separated from God of something that I did not do. And that's because Adam was our federal head. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as, though, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, death and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It is through Adam's sin, through his decision to, to, to turn his back on God and his standard, that man finds himself separated from God. 
because when God created Adam, he walked with God, he talked with God, he had that perfect relationship with the Father. But the day that he sinned, that relationship was broken with him. And so man finds himself, you find yourself, separated from God because of Adam's sin and because of your sin. And every person who has ever lived falls short of God's standard. But go back to Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 6. Paul sort of sums all this up in a few verses. He says, and he uses four terms here. Romans 5 and verse 6, while we were still helpless at the time Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then lastly in verse 10, for if we were, uh, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so there's that separation used in four different ways. We were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies of God. But in verse 8, but God. And just like what Martin Lloyd-Jordan says, thank you for the buts in Scripture. God demonstrated his own love. There's a great contrast there. And then in verse 10, he brought about reconciliation. Reconciliation means a peace treaty before two feuding parties. We have been reconciled back to God. Man could not come to God on his own because as what Paul is saying in these verses, he lacked the strength because we were helpless. We lacked the merit because we were ungodly in our action. We lacked the righteousness because we were sinners before God. And then we lacked the peace with God because we were enemies of God. And because of that, we had no way to return to God unless God provided the way. And Jesus is saying in John chapter 14 that I am the way. If you want to go to the Father, you can do it through him. And so that's why we celebrated the, uh, the, uh, uh, the birth and the incarnation of Christ. He came as a babe to die on the cross. He wasn't just a cute little baby, because people like cute babies, but he died to grow as a man to die upon the cross to, to take our place. He was not there just to point the way to the Father. He was not there to point that he was just one of the ways to the Father. But he alone is the only way to the Father. So he lived that perfect life to fulfill the Old Testament law where the first Adam failed by disobeying the law to where he became our second Adam, to where we are now reconciled back to God. So when you begin to look at John chapter 14 and verse 6, the world hates hearing that statement. That he is the only way to God. Because they like to think that if you're sincere in whatever you believe, that's good enough. 
that one's spiritual life is sort of like a wheel, and a wheel has many spokes. Just get on one of the spokes, and you can get to where you want to go. But if you were to believe that there is only one way to God, they very quickly get triggered and call you narrow-minded, and they call you a bigot. How can you be so small? Just as long as one is sincere, that that should be enough. And Jesus is making in uh, a claim, an explicit claim, that he is the only way that leads to the Father. Any other way that you may get on that road that you think that you're going to the Father will lead to destruction. I like what R.C. Sproul has to say, because he pointed this out. He says that the notion that all religions are valid is logically impossible. Because if all religions are valid, then Christianity is. For Jesus said that he is the only way to God which eliminates all other ways. So either he is right or he is wrong. And he concludes by saying, if he is wrong, then Christianity has no validity at all. If he's right, then there is no other way. So our Lord is saying in verse 6, he's saying that when you look at me, that I, am the only way to the Father. It really makes missions so important, does it not? Because God's people have to go out and share their faith to those who haven't heard, who haven't heard about the message. And that's why it's important for us as a church to be sharing our faith, to be praying for those who haven't heard, whether or not it's our immediate family or it's, it's those who we, we work around, or even those who we may not even know, but we get the opportunity to share. In many ways, the mission field is really coming to us here in America, as America gets very diverse. You meet everyone from just about any country anywhere, sooner or later. And so as we go out into the world and through the people that we meet, we need to share with them that Jesus is the way. Our Lord had a very similar illustration. You don't have to turn there, but back in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about entering through a narrow gate and a wide gate. You know the story. For there is a gate that is wide, and many people enter through its gate and go through destruction. But that narrow gate, he goes on to say, is small. But even though the way is narrow, it leads to life, and very few find it. And so most of us think that one just has to be on a road, but it depends on which road one is on. And Jesus is saying here that, very, um, that the only way to come to God is through him. It's through a narrow gate. Do you want to know what gate that you have walked through? Just examine in your life which path are you on. Is the path that you're on broad? Then you've walked through the broad gate. If the path that you're on is a narrow gate, then you have walked through the narrow path. And 
so one can look at their life and to see which path one is on. If your life looks exactly like the, the world, then you're on the broad path. But if your life looks like Christ, then you're on a narrow path. In Psalm 14 and verse 12, the, the psalmist nails it by saying this. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. People in our society seeks out paths which may seem appealing to them. But it's not through Christ, for Christ is the only way to the Father. And it is through faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. Amen? And so Christ is saying in our verse, he is the way. It's interesting because flip on over to Acts chapter 9 for, for just one moment. It's an interesting concept because when you look at the early church and when Luke writes the early church account, early Christians were not only um, called Christians in Antioch because they were little followers of Jesus, but also they were called followers of the way. In Acts chapter 9, Paul in the opening verses, Paul is still breathing death threats against the Lord's disciples. And in verse 2 of, of chapter 9, it says this, that Saul of Tarsus, which is, which is going to be the Apostle Paul, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, that, they may, that, may be, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Early church believers were called followers of the way. And so when our Lord says that I am the way, they took it to heart. That he is the way. So much so that they became known as followers of the way. And so the question arises upon you. Have you taken the right path to follow the way through Christ alone? Because Luke says in Acts chapter 14 and verse 12 that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that one has been given among men which we must be saved. And so when Christ makes this statement, it is a statement of, of reconciliation. But fourthly, I want you to look at that next term that he uses. Not only is it a statement of reconciliation, but it is a statement of revelation. He says, I am the way and I am the truth. Not only is Jesus the way to God, but he is the only truth from God. And it's interesting because we find the conjunction there and joining those two items together. You cannot enter the way without knowing the truth. You have to receive the truth and believe it to enter into the way, is his point. And so you have to believe in a certain truth, the entirety of Scripture. Now, for the Jews, they really prided themselves on, on having God's truth. Even the psalmist writes in Psalm 31, in verses 4 and 5, um, verse 5 says, Into your hands I commit thy spirit, you have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. 
They thought that they were dispensers of, of, of God's truth because God revealed himself in human history through the nation of Israel, given through Moses and through the prophets. And so when you're telling someone that not only is Jesus the way and he is the truth, you get a second scream of outrage. Ah, I don't like hearing that Jesus is, is the only way, but now Jesus is the only truth too? Oh, they think that there is no absolute truth in society. That if you're just sincere and believe whatever you want to believe, that is truth for you. It's interesting, I saw this one video to where this college um, evangelist went to the college campus and he began asking people a question. And the question basically centered around, if I tell you I'm a dog, am I wrong? And the majority of people said, if you believe that, if you're a dog, you're a dog. Well, that, because we live in a society that if you believe it, that's okay. That's your per personal belief. They would say that there cannot be a standard of absolute truth that doesn't change. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth, and that's all that there, that there is. But in Jesus' statement, he's not saying that at all. He is say, he's clearly saying that there is a set of standards from God, that he alone is that standard, that he is the perfect expression of God and therefore the absolute embodiment of all that is true because he makes the statement, I am the truth. So when you get to see this one statement, you get a second scream from someone that you're talking to. That can't be true. And Jesus says that it is true because he is that standard. Look, go, uh, turn to a couple of chapters over to the right to John chapter 18. Jesus is before Pilate. And he makes this tremendous statement to Pilate that he is the revealer and the revelation from God. Because John already began his gospel by, by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and that Word became flesh. And so now at the end of Jesus' ministry, there's a handful of hours left. He's before Pilate. Verse 33, therefore Pilate entered again into into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Look at verse 36. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. In verse 37, therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king, with a sarcastic voice. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Goes back to our, our Lord's statement of, of the sheep hearing his voice. And look at the sarcastic response he's, we find in verse 38. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? That statement is the statement of every generation who has ever lived. What is truth? 
The Greeks and Romans looked for answers, but they never found anything. Everything differed from every, uh, of everything else. And so the world says that there is no truth today. Whatever truth that you believe, that's truth for you. But what is truth? Jesus says, the things that I say is truth. I like how Steve Lawson defines truth, and he says it this way. He says, truth is reality. Truth is the way that things are. Truth is consistent with the mind of Christ, the will of Christ, the character of Christ, the glory of Christ, the being of Christ. Christ is the author of all truth. He is the source of all truth. He's the determiner of all truth. He's the arbitrator of all truth. He's the governor of truth, the standard of truth. He is the final judge of all truth, and he is the way and the truth. And so for many in our society today, they have their own truth. They study history and philosophy, but they get lost with man's truth. But no one man has ever embodied that truth. But Jesus did. Many teachers, they have good sayings, but they are never, they're never able to live up to the standard of truth that they taught. But Jesus is truth because he never failed in any of his truths that he taught. One more place that I just want you to turn and look for a moment. Go back to the beginning of, of John chapter 3. Because how does one go to find this truth? Jesus sort of answers this, this question. How does one go to the way with this truth? It's early on in our Lord's ministry. Nicodemus is there. And in verse 3 of chapter 3, Jesus answered him, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so he's basically saying, uh, and uh, his, his, his response is, I can't go back inside my mother's womb. Look at verse 16. He goes on to clarify, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not spare his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So to believe in Jesus is the key to find the way to the Father. To believe in the truth that Christ had proclaimed is to find the way. And so that's, that's at the heart of the gospel, to put your faith in the, his death, his burial, his resurrection to see the helplessness in which you are in and to confess your sin and to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And so then he comes into your life to give you eternal life. But go back to John chapter 14. There's one more term in the few moments that we have. Lastly, when he makes this, this statement, we find out that it is a statement of regeneration and Jesus said to him I am the way the truth and the life 
the only way to God, and he is the only truth from God, but he is the only life in God. And so once again, we find the word and that joins all three of those terms together. If you're on the way and know the truth, then you could be confident that you have eternal life. He is the life. There is no other kind of spiritual life that, that's made available. He is that life. And that, that was a constant point of his message when he was preaching, that he gives eternal life. He was the bread of life. If you hunger, there's no need to hunger anymore. If you thirst, there's no need, need to, hearst, to thirst that he was there to do the Father's will. And all that who would believe in him would have that eternal life, and he himself would raise him up on the last day. And so he is the giver of eternal life. And as we looked at before, it's more than just life here on this earth, though eternal life begins the moment you place your faith in Christ. It's an, it's an abundant life. It's a divine life. It's a spirit-empowered life. It's a life that, give, that gives complete fulfillment, even when times are hard. It's a life to where that begins now, but it will truly extend forever as we go to him. Because he has prepared a place, not just for his disciples, but for us too. And so it is a confident statement that we can place our faith in that it is a statement of regeneration when you're on the way and you know the truth and you place your trust in that truth that you can have the life because then we can go and have access to the father because the sal salvation has been made through the son the psalmist writes this in psalm 16 and verse 11 he writes you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And so when you look at what Christ is saying, it's very exclusive. He is the way, he is the truth, and he gives this life. There isn't multiple lives that we get to live. We only got the one. And what we do with it shapes all of eternity. To have eternal life is to have a relationship with him. He alone is the one who gives this life. It can't come from any other way. And so he's trying to comfort his disciples with, the, with them having troubled hearts. To tell them they don't have to travel alone. For every trial that we go through, he is there. For every hardship that we go through, that we can know that we can gain, gain strength from him to endure those things. Every difficulty that we experience, we can know that he is close by because he has given to us someone just like him. In verse 16 of John 14, that indwells us. And so he gives the way, he gives the truth, and he gives the life. This Life that he is talking about is more than just having a brand new spanking body, though that would be good. It's more than just freedom from being sick, though that is always good. 
It's more than just freedom from pain and suffering. It's more than just not struggling with conflicts or with sin. This life is a communion with the living God where we yearn to see him face to face. That's why as when we looked at 1 Peter in chapter 1, Peter sort of states, you love him, but you've never seen him. Yearn to see the face of my Savior because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. One last chapter that I just want you to look at in the moment that we have left. Turn to John's Gospel, 1 John chapter 5, where he underscores, because John likes the term light. He uses it throughout his Gospel, but also throughout his epistle. In 1 John chapter 5, we find this. In verse, beginning at verse 11, he says, And the testimony is this, that God has given us, and there's that word, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. So when you're on the way and you know the truth, once again you have eternal life. That life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not does have the Son of God, does not have life. And look at verse 13. And this is comforting, or this is convicting. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, it results in, or so that, you may know that you have eternal life. I can share with people and know with full confidence that if I were to die today, where I would go. But John says so. You can know to have eternal life. Why? Because I place my faith in, in, in Christ, that he is the only way. I believe the words that he says, that there is no salvation in anyone but in him. When my soul was hungering, he satisfied that hunger. When my soul was thirsting, he satisfied that thirst. And the moment we believe in him, we can know we have eternal life. And so when we look at the claim that he makes in this great I am statement, what a claim that he makes. It's a great area of comfort for all those who know him. You don't have to worry about, am I on the wrong road? No, no, he, he's the way. Is there, is there a special higher level of truth? No, no, all truth is found in him, revealed in his word. And is there another way of life, eternal life? Nope, eternal life is found in him. For others, that statement just is not settling at all. How could he be the only way? But he makes that claim. And so it is a statement of great comfort. It is a statement of great conviction. So as we begin to look at this coming year, are we willing to go out with that message to, to, sell, to tell someone of that comfort that he brings, to take that anxiety, to tell to others that he is that way in the truth, in the life? That's why we come to celebrate at the table, is it not? To celebrate the word picture that he has given to us, that he died in our place. So we have a picture of his broken, beaten body 
and the blood that needed to be shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. It's a picture of his death, of his burial, that we celebrated through remembering his death and burial, his his resurrection, excuse me. And so let's pray. Father, so much more could be said, but we generally say that every time we sort of close a message. But Father, we thank you that in your word, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to man in human history, that it can be studied, that we can glean understanding, and to know that your word is alive and active. It convicts a sinner's heart. It is one in which gives us hope and joy and comfort, knowing that we have a peace with you. And with that peace comes a a peace that is beyond all understanding when we go through difficult times. And so, Father, as we celebrate the table together, we thank you that it is a picture as we look forward to the new year, that for our lives it is a desire to bring you glory and honor and praise as we live out a life of worship to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.